Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I am Mischievous Marchinacchio, and I, too, own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man. But, Dan, as I've told you so many times before, the annuals do not count. Why would I have a feeling you were going to go there, Mark? What about Hobgoblin Lives? Does that count? I, I mean, it's... It's fun, but does fun count? I don't even know anymore. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) at the end of the day, I'd like to think fun counts. Okay, well, fun counts. It counts as fun, but does it count as the collection? That, that, no, it does not. I'm sorry. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Well, welcome, everybody, to the Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange fun and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks for joining us for this review episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This is the perfect time to start listening. Yeah, and if you want to hear some of our oldest interviews and and some of our best, frankly, uh, go check out the Amazing Spider Talk Back Issues feed. If you haven't already subscribed to that feed, basically it's all of our oldest stuff that gets kicked off of our main feed and winds up there so all of our episodes are available. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, and once you do, you can listen to some great interviews with industry legends like Mark Bagley, JMD, Ron Friends, even our first interview with like Nick Spencer, the former guy writing Amazing Spider-Man, um, it's all on there on the Amazing Spider Talk Back Issues feed. Today on the show, Mark and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man, Volume 6, Number 11. This issue is written by Zeb Wells with interior and cover pencils by John Romita Jr., inks by Scott Hanna, colors by Marcio Menez, and letters by VC's Joe Caramagna. This issue was first released on October 12th, 2022. What's All right, Dan. I'm gonna I'm gonna do one of my patented summaries here. Um, I, I I don't know how how inspired I am, but with Gen X references today, so you're just gonna have to you know get through it. I guess <laughs> I've um, been saved. <laughs> there you go. We are in Yorktown, and I must start by saying, is it me or are towns and jurisdictions with the word York in them getting featured a lot these days in Amazing Spider-Man? Chew on that, folks. Betty Brandt is chatting with Peter, thanking him for the kids' chemistry set for her and Ned's newborn son, Winston Leeds. The two catch up, and she lets it be known that Ned is working on a big story, and we all know only good things can come from that. Betty (laughs) hangs up and races to Winston's room, only to see the Hobgoblin in his yellow... Wait, yellow? It's his yellow cow? I... That are... Whatever. Cradling Winston and vowing to protect him. Skip to Oscorp. It's Peter and Kamala in biohazard suits. Norman seems grouchy, especially when dealing with some illegal dealings his partner warns him about. Peter bounces on his lab partner to go swinging with Felicia. The two get on top of a bridge, and Felicia has her Beyonce fan going. So naturally, Peter works up the courage to cut through their usual song and dance and ask her out. Felicia gives a hard, maybe... 
And Peter feels satisfied that he's finally, quote, moving on. That brings him back to his apartment where a shadowy Ned Leeds is waiting for him. Ned is working on a story and it involves an alliance of Roderick Kingsley and Peter's new boss, Norman Osborn. Ned is trying to flip Peter into his own personal Hal Holbrook, but rather than tell him to follow the money, Peter decides to take things into his own hands. He meets Norman, who's showing off another new suit, and Peter confronts him about Kingsley. Norman admits, yes, he's been meeting with Roderick because after being cleansed of his sins, he wants to give Kingsley the pieces of his empire he stole out from underneath him. What a guy. Turns out he's being blackmailed. Peter offers to help Norman and tells him about their meeting, but gives him the wrong night. What are you up to, Mr. Osborne? Later, Norman goes to rendezvous with Roderick and is all too eager to cut a deal and move on. But what good is a hobgoblin story without another 30 mysteries? So naturally, the, <laughs> the yellow... Wait, are we, are we sure it's yellow, Niccolo? The yellow cowed villain shows up to cause havoc at the Norman-Roderick meetup. Cut back to the nursery, and Betty is asleep as a mysterious figure talks to baby Winston from off-panel. Who could it be? That's right, folks. We are neck deep in another hobgoblin mystery, with the only thing to salvage it is a yellow cowl to wrap around the neck. I mean, what, what, what is up with the yellow cowl, Dan? I mean, it's been orange, right? What's going on? I mean, that's, that's the real mystery here, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, Mark, Mark is referencing this tweet from the official Spider-Man Twitter account, blue check and all, or is it a green check? Who can really say with cutlers these days? That references the you know first image or I guess second image of the hobgoblin from this issue, where it says who is under the yellow cowl, and either the meaning of cowl has changed to mean mask, or they're completely wrong about the colors. In fact, I tweeted about this, and Marcio Menez, the colorist of this issue, responded to me saying, "No, it's very clearly an orange." So. Uh, <laughs> You know, like, uh, we, we got to the bottom of that mystery. Is uh, It is an orange cowl and a yellow mask, and uh, let no one say anything otherwise. It makes me suspect maybe the Spider-Man that operates the Spider-Man Twitter, because it's obviously a real guy, must be colorblind. And this is the first we're learning about it. So, there you go. I mean, I, I just want to demonstrate for those who could view at home. Yellow... Orange, yellow, <laughs> orange. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. So, Mark, I even changed the amazing spider slack to, uh, to reflect the release of this issue. It became the amazing hobgoblin slack for a day. I am so thrilled to be in the midst of a hobgoblin story in 2022. It's been eight years since we've had hobgoblin as a major force. You know, back in the War of the Goblins, you know, during the Superior Era was the last time we saw Roderick and his kind of evil alter ego in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. And I don't count all of his other appearances after that, like the Axis Hobgoblin or that really <laughs> terrible Miles Morales Hobgoblin story. I like Axis Hobgoblin fine. There's been a lot of like iffy Hobgoblin stories in that time. It was fine in his Spider-Woman appearance during the Dennis Hopeless run. But like, I feel like reading this issue, I was brought right back to the stuff I love about Hobgoblin. And that's a good Hobgoblin mystery. And I got to admit, Mark, I have no idea what is going on here. And I'm loving it. I'm with you. I mean, it's certainly reminiscent of, if not just the Hobgoblin mysteries of yesteryear, certainly the Goblin mysteries, but not like in a in a kindred mystery kind of way. I mean, like we're, I, we're, we're, you know, we've been around the block a few times. So, you know, I certainly have, I don't know if I would call them theories, but like, you know, I'm certainly not like of a position to be like, this is the one character that is Hobgoblin, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like this, this, this was kind of rolled out in a really clever, fun way, very, very nostalgic, but also I think 
playing into the the current status quo of this universe and and you know that's kind of been par for the course of the zeb wells run so far which is like how do we take these classic elements and and bring them into this this current story and i feel like through one issue so far we 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 have another successful execution of that yeah, well, I think it helps to have John Romita Jr. and Scott Hanna doing the art, you know, uh, you know, mostly just for that kind of classic style. I mean, this really felt like something out, out of that kind of classic era of Roger Stern, Hobgoblin, obviously with a more updated art style. But like there really is a kind of like connective tissue, I think, there that makes this Hobgoblin feel like the same character, although I don't necessarily believe that it's Roger Kingsley under the costume, which is interesting. But and we could talk about that later. For a first issue of a Hobgoblin story, there's very minimal appearances of the Hobgoblin by design, I think. There's only two images that we get in the whole book, two panels. Now they're big splashy panels. Keeping him minimal on the page, you know, keeps that kind of excitement going. And I'm sure it will grow over the three issue story here. You want to get into some of that speculation or talking about those appearances? Well, sure. I mean, I think I for me personally, I think it's worth noting that, like you said, we got we got two physical appearances of the Hobgoblin here. But I think in both instances, they were very distinct appearances. Like, you know, the the, the very first one when he shows up with with Winston, you know, there's almost something kind of paternal about the character if you will like he's protecting winston i think if we're gonna play the guessing game already you would think maybe it's ned Leeds, you know revisiting his time as the hobgoblin i mean especially if he's in betty brant's house in yorktown now i I, i'm i'm not trying to be obtuse here dan but like I, i was actually like looking up like yorktown like i don't I don't think they mean like a neighbor. I don't think that's a neighborhood in New York. Right. I mean, like Yorktown is out. But but the first mystery was in York, Pennsylvania. Right. I mean, am I am I mixing up my Yorks here? So I'm just trying to figure out geographically where where we're at in this. You know, I think that helps with the that helps with the mystery. I think if you know physically where these characters are. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny you say that because like uh, I had just kind of presumed like Yorktown was a neighborhood in in New York that I wasn't familiar with. And you as a New Yorker, I, I would trust your your judgment on this. So is Yorktown just not a place that, you know, I looked it up and it was a quote unquote census designated place in Virginia, which I don't think we're putting this, this story in Virginia, but I, 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 unless like there's some, like <laughs> I'm, I'm really getting like New York nerdy here, unless there's like some kind of like real estate term for an area in New York city that they refer to as Yorktown. I'm not familiar with it, where this is. So I just want to put that out there. So I just looked it up as we're talking here. Yorktown is a town on the northern border of Westchester County. It's approximately 38 miles north of Midtown Manhattan. Okay, that makes um, sense then. Okay. But but that's to suggest like you know, I don't know what the like the, the airspeed velocity of an unladen hobgoblin is. Is he traveling like if we're to believe it's the same person, which we'll get to my theory cuz I don't think it's the same person. That's a long distance, 38 miles to go on a glider. I don't know what kind of, can you stop and refuel? I don't, with gas prices these days, who's to say? I mean, who's to say he didn't just like hop on the Metro North and, you know, like take that down into Grand Central and then hop on his glider from there. I mean, that's the thing. But that's also to your point, Dan, about how many goblins are there. I mean, that's why I said they feel very distinct in terms of the personalities. I mean, we get one panel with them, but they felt distinct enough. Like the first one felt kind of tamer and almost benign if you will like i mean it was creepy as hell him showing up in in the room with with betty but like it didn't feel overly threatening in my opinion whereas the second appearance with norman and roderick and peter it felt like the chaotic hobgoblin who was about to start lighting things up with pumpkin bombs like that was kind of the vibe i got from both of the appearances so like that to me makes me i mean we could be dealing with multiple personalities for sure or multiple people but i think it's i'm i'm thinking it's multiple people yeah and i think those are really good points i mean the first one you know i like paternalistic is a great way to describe it i also didn't find it like physically threatening in the way that i found the second one which comes in like hunched and muscles pumped 
this one is like kind of creepy, to be honest, like a hunched back, like kind of secreting away this baby in in a sort of way, which I found really interesting. And then the dialogue is fascinating, too, because that hobgoblin suggests I need to protect Winston from from them, which is an interesting choice of words. You know, it suggests multiple people or a conspiracy of some sort. And like you start asking questions like who would have it out for Winston? I, I don't really know. You know, other than perhaps someone who's like really paranoid, you know, about protecting this child. Well, we know that Ned kept Winston, kept himself alive through use of the goblin serum. Correct. That was what we established during the next. So, I mean, you know, by proxy, if if he sired this child with Betty, I mean, could this child have goblin genetics in him? And that's what he's trying to protect. Like he thinks that, you know, whatever the goblin Osborne legacy, who, whoever, you know what I mean? Like it's if 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 a baby's got goblin blood, there's probably somebody after it for nefarious reasons. That seems to be like a Spider-Man given in terms of the history of the character here. So, well, it immediately takes me back to the end of the brand new day run with the origin of species story that basically had all of Spider-Man's rogues galleries chasing after the new Osborne child for its, for its Osborne or for its yeah goblin blood, which does Zeb Wells write that? Or was he at least a part of that? I mean, he was part of the brain trust at that point. Right. So, you know what? I don't think so, but it's, it's possible. Yeah. Sorry. You, you figure you finish your point. I'm sorry. (laughs) So let's go to the second one, like, which is really aggressive shows up at this meeting between Norman and, and Roderick Kingsley and interrupts it and is incredibly violent, like like goes out of its way to be violent in a way that I, I don't even know if I remember the Hobgoblin being this explicitly violent other than maybe like blowing up the, uh, you know, the guy who discovered the costume in the van. But here you've got like blood drenching over the the glider as you know, the glider has like severed these people's limbs it's really violent and the level of kind of madness on the goblins like face in entering the kind of language is not something that i attribute to the roderick kingsley hobgoblin not well not to mention that roger kingsley is right there you know like you know as a quote-unquote victim of, of this my brain immediately goes to queen goblin not to mention that queen goblin's on the cover like it's her hand holding the hobgoblin mask. She's not doesn't appear in this issue like directly. So like I have to think that like whatever scheduling snafu or rewriting that removed the context of this cover, it is a clue to suggest Queen Goblin will involve be involved in the story. And just reading that text absent of like the look of the character, it, it sounds like crazy Norman Osborn uh, under there, which we know has been transplanted. My immediate guess is like, this is the queen goblin in surprise or in disguise for what purpose. I'm not sure. There's a suggestion from the text that says like you tried to bury your past. And the last we saw queen goblin was in uh, issue from a uh, volume five, 92 dot beyond where on, it was like a one page backup of a really not great issue where she basically says like, she's going to get revenge on Norman and make him face his, you know, sins that he thinks he can escape from agenda wise and motivation wise. It matches up with her previous characterization. So like to me that immediately screamed queen goblin in disguise again, like keeping that motivation, you know, thread. I don't know what relation she has to Hobgoblin other than that. Maybe you could count him as a sin of Norman. I, I'm, I, I'm with you on the Ned in costume and also with, you know, this was queen goblin to me. Did that register for you when you read it? The more we talk about it, the more it registers. And it's also worth noting, like per your earlier point about the physicality of the second goblin, that the pose that we see the Hobgoblin in is, is very reminiscent of that cover we got of the first Queen, uh, Queen Goblin appearance. So I, 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 that seems to be where it's headed. I mean, with that said, it's a Goblin mystery, folks. And, <laughs> you know, like, I I am not ready to concede. I mean, I'm not even technically ready to concede Ned. I mean, it, it, it seems obvious, 
But that that might be the the red herring right there. How obvious it seems. So you know, like I'm sure I'm sure we're right to some degree. But you know, we'll find out how right we are. I guess is what it boils down to. <laughs> so, well, I I want to go circle back on the Ned thing for two reasons. One, we have this really interesting final page of this issue, which is actually re- I think a really bizarre way to end the issue in a kind of intriguing and off-putting way. You've got this, like, you know, Betty Leeds. I, I guess she's Betty Leeds again. She is asleep with a tablet in her lap in the nursery, and you've got an off-camera person talking to Winston. And we don't see who that person is. You know, we could assume it's the person in that hobgoblin costume, but then why not show that person, right? Other than to maybe like throw us off from the timeline of like where that character is at the docks versus, you know, in the nursery. I guess if you showed them back to back, it would be very obvious that there's two hobgoblins. But the language of that scene is really interesting because it doesn't seem particularly threatening if you read it through like a certain lens, which is to say like Betty does not seem harmed. She's like sleeping with a tablet in her lap and the the character off screen says that like they helped Betty go to sleep and that a lot of work, like good work was done here. Like like a therapist might say, right? Like, oh, we got a lot of good work done today. And so that makes me think like Kafka, right? Like like something therapeutic and like and Betty, like, you know, I could see her slowly going to sleep while reading something. What? Or Bart Hamilton. Oh, my gosh. Blow my mind there. Mark. I didn't think about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, you um, know, if we're talking about goblins, I'm just saying. <laughs> Bart Hamilton yeah, you're is, right. Bart Hamilton was Harry Osborne's therapist uh, back in the Len Wein run of the late 70s for those playing the home game. So that's all. And, and he turned out to be the third Green Goblin uh, during that run. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's really interesting to me because like I was like you, I thought it was Ned. But I do think that final page, there's something else going on there in the way that the language is used and the artwork doesn't really sell us on like traumatized Betty. Right. I mean, you could imagine that the hobgoblin like drugged her and then posed her that way is like a we're one happy family kind of thing. But that's not really the read I get on that. No, like Uh, she doesn't seem like completely like disoriented. She just seems asleep, (laughs) which is like, I, I, you know, like, I don't know if that's artistically what they were trying to get across here. But like I, I, I didn't feel like she was in any kind of danger or even in any kind of distress. Like it, it was just like, well, she's sleeping. And you know, I don't know what he is or what the character off panel is referring to in terms of getting her to sleep. But like it doesn't seem like call me simple minded. But like if I feel like a character has been drugged, like I feel like the sleep should be more dramatic than what we saw here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it's, you know. I, I don't know. I, I just feel it was like pretty benign sleep. But, you know, that's just me. <laughs> I don't know what it all means, but like that, I just got to like tell you what I thought when reading the page. OK, so let's let's skip ahead to kind of like the other big moment from this issue, which is uh, the Peter Parker, Felicia Hardy, you know, Black Cat Spider-Man scene on the rooftop. I, I've kind of spilled a lot of ink or internet ink over the past week in the Slack talking about this and how this was the one scene that didn't work for me in this comic. I, I'm very curious to hear what you thought about this, especially as someone that like really like I like to make fun of the Black Cat Spider-Man relationship from like the early 80s and and all. And I know that that's what's really kind of formative for you. I'm curious, like maybe nostalgia wise or even just reading it on the page, how this landed for you. Let, let me preface this by saying like, yeah, I, I like those stories that you like to make fun of from the eighties, but that doesn't, I don't feel like I'm a Peter Felicia shipper by any chance. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I like them because I, I think in the context of where Spider-Man was at the time, this was a fun part of the character to explore like this kind of dynamic. I, I don't know if it didn't quote unquote work for me, but like, you know, one of the one of the instant kind of like I don't want to call it flags for me, but like where I just kind of was like, no, that's that's a bunch of BS was like, you know, after Peter asked her out, 
he was like, well, now I can move on. And I'm like, you ain't moving on from MJ. Like, that's not <laughs> like that's that is that is no like that's just not happening here. Like there there is no nothing in the text here that makes me think that's what's happening here. You know, so like it, it, it either regardless of what ultimately comes out of the sequence, like this is not this is not the palate cleanser that Peter is like broadcasting it to be like this is this is very much a. You know, like, well, let me do this while I, I, I figure stuff out with MJ right now. You know what I mean? So that that was kind of the first part that didn't totally sit right with me. I mean, it's it's a fun scene, but it's a weird scene. And like, you know, like I always like to tip my hat when, you know, especially in, in a serialized story like Spider-Man is when the the creators kind of like point out what is what is cliched and wrote about the characters and be like, okay, no, we're, 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 we're going to be meta and call it out and, and do something different this time. So like, you know, Peter basically being like, you know, instead of doing the whole, I'm going to push you away thing, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you out finally. And it's like, all right, like that's, that's kind of fun in a, in a, in a cheer for the, for the character as a person kind of a way. But like, like I said, like I said at the very beginning, like I'm not buying this as like this, like, big major emotional step for Peter, nor do I necessarily buy it as an emotional step for Felicia. So it's it's kind of like this is this is fun from a fan fiction standpoint, but I don't see this going anywhere important, I guess, is where I'm at with it. If I'm just going to assess this really quickly from like a Felicia standpoint, like I think a lot of really great work has been done with that character in the Jed McKay Black Cat series is. And now we've got the currently Iron Cat that's going on, which I think is really fun. I do feel it's a little reductive to kind of see her back as like potentially Peter's girlfriend. That's not to say you can't be your own independent character. Also be dating another character in the Marvel uh, Comics universe. But that book has really done a lot to like move her on past Peter and establish her bisexuality and her relationship with like one of the women that she trained with that has had its own ups and downs and it deals with her mentorship and things like that. And um, like, I, I guess I, I wasn't really tracking her being back in Peter's orbit, which like to the credit of this issue, she seems kind of surprised by Peter's advance and doesn't really give him an affirmative. So like uh, I, I appreciated that. Like, I don't think she is the same character that was, pining for Peter back in the Roger Stern days, you know? So I appreciate that characterization of her. I think the thing that really didn't work for me in this scene, which I'll say this scene is, I think beautifully written out of context. Like the bit with the wind blowing that her hair in Peter's face is really kind of funny and awkward and um, kind of like lets everybody's guard down in a charming way. But the um, the moment after he asked her out where he kind of collapses on the roof and he's like, I can't believe how hard that was. And like he just kind of seems like a young schoolboy asking out a, a girl, someone that he has like this level of history with. And maybe that's a result of his depression and feeling like a lack of self-confidence. But like even the page that leads into this where he's talking to Kamala and he's like, I'm going on a do or die mission. And he's got this smug smile on his face, like sells me on a guy who's fairly confident. So like as the reader, when he collapsed on the roof of the building, like I was kind of caught off that I wasn't expecting him to ask Felicia out because two issues ago he was saying that MJ was the love of his life. But as someone forcing himself to move on, like you said, I believe it. I was surprised that he had the reaction of of being so kind of taken off guard that she said yes, because emotionally I wasn't caught up in the like, will she, won't she? Peter's really invested a lot into this moment with her. So like as as a reader, I was completely emotionally disengaged from whatever was going on with Peter's head that that really took me back as a surprise. Like, Oh, he really put a lot into this. Like he was really emotionally racked about this. And I felt none of that. And I felt really like maybe having some like internal monologue about like that built up to this would have prepared me for that. But I, I feel like that was a moment where I, you know, me and the Peter train were very on different paths. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, no, I, 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 I think so. I mean, as you 
said, I mean, like, this all feels also very out of context. I mean, it's not like, I mean, we had some really great Peter and Felicia content in the during the Beyond Run, but like, it felt very platonic. Like, I there there was nothing about it that like made me think like, oh, look at the chemistry between these two. And you know what I mean? Like, it it, it was more there, like there was that one moment where Peter woke up. When Felicia was in the room and not MJ. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing I can point to. It's very random. And, you know, I think, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a little fan servicey. But like, I also don't I'm also not going to get too wrapped up about it because, as I said a few minutes ago, I don't I don't think this is going to lead anywhere consequential. I think this is just a diversion until we get back onto this storyline of what did Peter do and why is MJ so angry about it? And then we'll be recentered on that. So that's just kind of where I'm at with it. I I agree with you. I just think this was like the, like other than issue 900, this was like the one time in the Wells run where I felt like I didn't understand like why Peter was acting the way that he was, or I felt like really disconnected from a major decision that Peter made even not knowing what he did. Like, I feel like I've still been very connected with that character. Maybe this is a result of the weird publishing schedule that's going on with this book where he has to write stuff for Ramita months and months and months and months, you know, ahead of time. But I don't know. I just, for me, this scene didn't work and I really wanted it to work for me. So you want to tell want, want, want me to tell some folks about the slack then? No, I don't Mark. I want you to tell people like very vigorously about the slack. All right, fine. Well, hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. I mean, not me. Well, sometimes. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. I hang out in the Slack all the time, and I think you could probably guess what everybody was talking about this week. We've just been theorizing about Hobgoblin stuff all week. You know, everybody's pouring through the pages of this book and and theories left and right, up and down, forwards and backwards. If you want a Hobgoblin theory, we've got 12 of them for you. So come on into the Slack if you want to join in with that theorizing. And I'll tell you, like some of them I've said on the show here, there's like a whole bunch of others that I haven't. But, like, they're all equally valid. I just have to call it as I see it. Yeah, so come join our awesome Spider-Man community. You can follow the link in the description of this episode, and it will take you right to the Slack. It's kind of the place where you go and you talk to people about Spider-Man because no one in your real life will. So you might as well do it in our Slack channel. You're just a straight shooter respected on both sides, Dan. I mean, there's just no way around That's it. it. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, so let's come back to the issue. I want to talk about, like, like not to get into the Hobgoblin mystery, although certainly I think most of the information that we're given in this issue is to feed the mystery in some way, right? Like, if you're doing a Hobgoblin mystery, everything has got to be related in some way, right? So let's talk about all the kind of like major players that also have interesting things going on with them in, in this issue. So let's talk about Norman because he's really become like a co-lead. What about J. Jonah Jameson? No, <laughs> <laughs> he's not in this issue, Mark. Oh, right, right. Sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm back in 1983. Okay, Norman Osborne. Yes. Yeah, so there's this really interesting moment. So, like, first of all, Norman is developing these, like, jet engines that Peter and, uh, you know, Kamala are, are, are making with him. Now, I'm not so sure about Kamala as a, like, like her status quo seems really weird to me. I don't like, get she why she's know... in this book right now. I just don't. I'm, I, I don't mean to be reductive about her, but, like, I don't understand why she's here. I, I, I don't either. Maybe just for that one shot during Dark Web. Although Wells recently said he has big plans for her in the second year of his of his run. I don't really get why she would work for Norman Osborn, like which then asked the question, like, how much do people know about his sins being cleansed? Like, he did he go on like a publicity tour and be like, look, I was shot with this magical shotgun and, you know, now everything's fine. Trust me, let me run this major empire. Because, like, last he was on the scene, like, he, well, he was running, why am I forgetting the name of the mental institution? Ravencroft. Oh, uh, Ravencroft, yes. 
which, you know, that was a weird status quo for him. And before that, he was a major Avengers villain. I, I don't really, really know what's going on with his like kind of public persona enough that like Kamala is there. I mean, maybe she has an alternative motive like Peter does to, to be working there, but it does seem weird. Anyway, they're working on this jet engine, which I'm sure will come into play somewhere. Is Norman going to outer space? I don't know what all of this is for. Is he going to have the world's biggest glider? I don't know. The most interesting thing about this is like this assistant kind of like runs in and they get into like a fight. Norman like says, like, I didn't ask you if it was legal. And we don't really know what this is about. Like maybe it's about the whole like handing over his assets to, you know, to Kingsley. I think Norman is obviously up to something that is involved with this hobgoblin thing. I mean, not to mention that like moments later when, when uh, Peter kind of like questions him about Kingsley, he gives Peter the wrong night of their meeting to deliberately mislead him. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about this since this run began. Like when, it, when, when is the, when is the betrayal going to come between Norman and Peter? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I personally don't think it's now. I think we're going to string this along a little longer, frankly. I hope uh, so, because I think it's a really cool status quo. I, I, I mean, whether you think it's cool or not, I also think like you can't you can't introduce a status quo like this to to blow it up within you know, six months anyway, personal, that's my personal take on it. So yeah, I, right. I, I, I will remind you of Peter's identity being unmasked and that being blown up within six months. But yes, yes, yes I agree I, with you. Well, right. But was, was that, was that a wise decision? That's that. <laughs> uh, I'm looking at the long game here and I don't think we're ready to move on from this storyline and to flip the script back to where it was yet. So like, I'm almost just like, not that I'm not taking it seriously, but I'm just like, nah, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, like there's something going on, but we're going to like, it's, you know, similar to just the whole revelation of Norman, like willing to just give Kingsley his holdings back without a fight. You know, it just feels like we're going to, you know, no, that's not what this is. You know, I said, it's not that I said no more mutants. I said no more mutants. You know, like it's just like <laughs> I, 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 that's where I feel this is going right now. I just I'm just not buying it. I I, I think we're going to string this out a little longer, and you know, this is all just red herrings. Uh, I think you're on to something there, which is to say, like uh, combine this kind of fight with this guy with what he does with Peter later on with giving him the wrong nut. You have to ask yourself why wouldn't Norman want Peter at that meeting, right? Which to me then suggests like perhaps Norman is behind the sudden appearance of the hobgoblin uh, in that scene, right? Like, cause he knows something is going to go down. And if Spider-Man were to show up, it would thwart whatever plan he has. And it got me thinking like if it's red God or if it's queen goblin inside that costume, you know, like, could it be that Norman, like he's good but like he is going to use his sins and his goblin persona to like do the dirty work that he himself can't can't do as a sort of scapegoat. And it makes me think like maybe he's got Queen Goblin locked up somewhere in Osborne. And that's what the the assistant was coming to tell him, like, we can't keep this woman locked up in our basement. You know, that's where my brain immediately goes. It's like. Oh, Norman is controlling this whole situation. Like he's not scared of a hobgoblin showing up because like one, it's not hurting his guys, you know, and two, like he told Spider-Man to stay away. So that's where my brain, my brain immediately goes. What do you think of this appearance of this gold goblin suit? You know, it shows up here for the first time. We know there's a mini, but this issue seems to imply that it's Peter's suit because he says he's going to change the colors over it so like that also sent up a giant red flag to me i'll i'll be i'll be honest i didn't like dwell too much on that i mean like my initial read of it like you said was like oh he's got more doohickeys for peter here but like i don't know if i necessarily thought it was what the nefarious like underbelly of that is i mean you know it it, it was kind of reminiscent frankly of like the iron patriot uh, costume in, in in effect, you know, in in a, in a gold way, I guess. So I, 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 you know, 
I am maintaining that we are not about to flip the script on Norman yet. And like anything that we're getting here is just to bait us into thinking that script's about to be flipped. And then it's going to it's going to be prolonged much longer than this. So like I'm I'm almost just like I'm I, I'm looking at all of these red flags with a high, healthy dose of skepticism and and not really taking them too literally right now, if that makes sense. I think you're right, Mark, despite my theorizing, because that's just where my brain went. Maybe I, I, I'm i prone to it. I think people know by now from, from the history of this show. Uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, not only do we have this Gold Goblin series coming out where Norman is ostensibly good, I think that's the dr- cool, dramatic way to play this, right? Like, And keep playing with it. Like, It's a cool tool to have in your belt to be like, you can't trust this guy. You know, like play with that for as long as you need. I feel and, like you can you can keep stringing people along so that when you do drop the hammer, it's going to be all the more shocking. You know what I mean? Like, like if you yeah. keep having all these like, oh, is this it? No, it's not. Is this it? No, it's not. And then all of a sudden we're not going to suspect it. And it's going to be like, oh, sh- shoot. <laughs> <Norman's done it. laughs> all right. So let's let's get back to, to Ned Leeds, another guy who has taken a goblin serum. I don't know that I love that for Ned Leeds, but like if he's get, if he's going to do it, you might as well get the whole crew back together and bring Ned into a hog goblin story and give him goblin powers. The question here, I think that is like, he seems clearly he's out for revenge on Roderick Kingsley, right? His whole report, you know, and they're obviously trying to make you question him, right? He approaches Peter in the dark, you know, uh, of his building, but then they're clear to say his spider sense doesn't go off. So they're kind of playing it both ways. Uh, do you have any initial feelings about Ned Leeds in this? I feel like these appearances are very reminiscent of like the, the Falco friends, Ned Leeds, Hobgoblin appearances, you know, like, like it almost, again, like similar to like what we're going through with Norman, like, it almost feels too obvious. So, like, if it's that obvious, are they? Is that really where they're going to pull the trigger? I don't think so. I think there might be something going on with Ned being hobgoblin, but is he the hobgoblin that is causing chaos and destruction? That I'm not as sold on. I guess that's where I'm at with it. Like, like you know, like there's certainly there's certainly a storyline reason for Ned to be dressing as the Hobgoblin and doing weird stuff, but not actually being threatening as the Hobgoblin, if that makes sense. I agree with that. Unless, of course, the Goblin Serum took the same effect on him that it has other people and has driven him insane or given him a split personality. Like, I think that's certainly like not out of the ballpark of expectations here. Like we could have a crazy Ned and you know, during this scene, which I thought was really um, nicely drawn by John Romita jr. To kind of incorporate the shadows and the mystery element and the kind of physical threat that Ned has always, I think kind of presented, even though he's the blandest character design on earth, this made me really feel like I was reading an eighties comic. Like this whole issue felt like you said straight out of the eighties, like very little appearance of Spider-Man in costume, a lot of variety of characters going on. Like, like I really felt like I was reading like a Roger Stern or Tom DeFalco era issue and what a great feeling that was i i enjoyed this quite a lot oh 100 i mean it, it was very nostalgic but not you know like kind of like what i said at the very very beginning of the review like nostalgic while feeling a part of the current status quo like it, it, it's everything is driving this story forward it's not like it's not just waxing nostalgic poetic for the sake of it right now so, okay, last major figure who we've not mentioned much is Roderick Kingsley. I, I dare say a favorite villain of ours in his Machiavellian nature. You know, he enters into the scene here blackmailing Norman to get his business back. And it's, I think, in one of the moments that made me truly laugh reading this comic where he, he says, oh, I'm not surprised the fashion house collapsed. This whole thing was a nice callback to Goblins at the Gates from Spectacular Spider-Man, which you and I talked about, I think, shortly ago in our Hobgoblin part three or part two episode. Yeah, part three. That's a really fun story. And I'm. it's cool to see the impacts of that be felt. But Roger Kingsley is kind of like, you know, he brings these goons along with him to rough up Norman, but he's kind of presented as like a kind of having like the, the like the lesser hand here. 
And that's just not the Roger Kingsley I know. And I don't believe it for a second. Like, I think Machiavellian this guy is. And he's got like, like something else going on. I don't know what. Like, I, 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 like, if someone is getting the upper hand on Roger Kingsley, I tend to think that they actually aren't. That's interesting because, like, I, I, I too was kind of like, ah, it feels like this guy's lost his fastball. But, like, I'm not, like, of all of, like, the quote-unquote suspects involved, I'm not, like, getting too intertwined with the Roger Kingsley of it all. Like, he feels very superficially involved to me at this point, which I, I might be completely off base on and you might be spot on about but like i don't well, know it like, might be by design right like yeah, the master yeah. of misdirection you know yeah, uh, I, might be pointing you a different way that's the thing like it just did not come across to me in any kind of way where i was like seriously taking this character as being more of what than what we were seeing and you know like if i'm wrong shame on me you're right but like i i I just wasn't I wasn't getting that sense like there was nothing in the text. I mean, I feel like if we go in that direction, it's a little bit of a cheat. But given what the character is and who he's about, it wouldn't be a cheat. But like, <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I mean, don't trust anybody. But like, I don't know. This doesn't seem like it's much here. I mean, it seems pretty blase to me. So I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, I'm probably just maybe like hoping for, for more out of it, you know, but like, I, I don't know. I, I have a lot of faith in Zeb Wells in regards to like mystery so far, like given that he so misdirected me with the tombstone arc um, when I wasn't even expecting a mystery and that this story is a three parter that is explicitly a hobgoblin mystery. I'm like, all right, like I'm expecting some real out of left field. I didn't see it happening you know, like even just the little things like him saying, like, it'll be Thursday night and then the page turn being, you know, Wednesday night, that's asking a lot out of the reader to like, normally that kind of thing is something you would ignore. Like, oh, it's just a little header. But like, it's clear that every word has been chosen very specifically to, to convey something. So that's probably why I'm over reading into all this stuff, because I know that there was some painstaking labor into making sure that the words on the page had meaning behind them. You want to give this thing a grade, Mark? I have been kind of consistently floating in this range since the beginning of this run. It's another B plus for me. Like I, I enjoyed this this comic immensely. Uh, there were some elements that would keep me from going to the next level, but like you know, hey, this is a fun part one of a Hobgoblin story. So B plus for me. Yeah, and I'm going to give it a B plus as well. I think the Felicia thing didn't sit with me entirely right, but like so much else of this is fun. And what I would expect from like the start of a hobgoblin mystery. And like, I think you said it earlier, but the thing I'm most kind of wowed by in the Wells run is how seamless he makes it all seem like there's not, this feels like the right story at the right time. I don't feel like it came out of nowhere and suddenly it's like, well, they brought Hobgoblin back because they got to sell some books or whatever. It's like, oh no, this like thematically seems appropriate for this run. I think that takes a lot of skill to choose the right story at the right time and make it seem seamless. And I appreciate that a lot. Like I, it's something I, you know, when the best runs of Spider-Man flow into each other without question and I think Wells is already pulling that off. Well, on on that note of right comics and right time and organic storytelling, let's talk a little bit about the new Spider-Man book that recently debuted. <laughs> uh, the, the the brand new adjectivalist Spider-Man number one. We're not going to do a full review of this. It's despite the fact that it's the new Dan Slott story with Mark Bagley on his art. It's still, you know, I, by all... By all definitions, a B book, and we 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 review the A books here on this podcast. But I know certainly, Dan, I've gotten several comments about like, oh, are you going to talk about the new book? I'm sure you have as well on the Slack. Do you want me to kind of give a general overview or do you want to go first or how do you want to do this? <laughs> well, l let me respond to that as well, because um, I have. Yes, like you said, I've got a bunch of those tweets as well and, and requests from our listeners to cover this book. And I think in an ideal world where Mark and I have an endless amount of time, we would be covering this book in that level of detail. And for me, the real question is, it's a B title. We didn't cover Spider-Geddon. 
right? And this is like the next, the end of that trilogy. I don't know what this book is right yet. Like, I don't know that its identity has really shown itself. Like, we don't know what's going to happen after the Mark Bagley arc here, the end of Spider-Verse. If it ends up being like, I th- like the, the comparison that I am like drawing myself to is the Scott Snyder Batman books post his run with Greg Capullo, where he kind of bounced around these evergreen stories with different artists, including John Romita Jr. And a really fun story with Two-Face. Like, I don't know exactly what this book is. Like if it ends up being like really strongly tied into the main series, like I feel like Mark and I could bring it up you know, each week, or maybe we talk about the individual arcs, but um, I think time is still yet to tell how this is going to fit in. Like, I just, I find the whole thing kind of weird that Dan Slott would be eager to do a B book. And when I talked to him, like, I think the appeal seemed to be working with artists that he's never worked with before and not having to do a book twice a month, which I, which I also get, like, I, I get the appeal of that. But it just seems very strange, and I don't like like begrudge him doing that. But I do find it weird that it kind of like in some ways steals the thunder from Zeb Wells's run, which I think is quite good. And maybe this is the kind of thing that allows like a non superstar writer like Wells to kind of sell like a Spider Man book with decent numbers, but supplant you know support it with some other book with like major A list teams. But I think time is really going to tell on this. Like Dan Slott says it's an ongoing and maybe I, I, I don't really know. Well, look, I mean, in terms of why do this and stealing thunder and all that, look like the bottom line is you got Dan Slott on a new Spider-Man book. That's about the Spider-Verse, uh, which is like, you know, you know, ever since the movie is like, the topic du jour in terms of, you know, the multiverse, this thing, I'm sh- I am I haven't looked at sales numbers yet, but I'm sure it sold very well. It will continue to sell very well. And like, you know, not to be cynical about it, but that might just be reason enough to, to do this book right now. And for Dan Slott to not feel like he's taking a backseat, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's very much a featured project for him. Uh, in that regard, if it sells well, and if he could just do his thing without having to worry about the main narrative. I mean, with all that said, you know, like my my simple review of this comic is that if you really like Dan Slott, I'm sure this comic hit all the sweet spots for you. If you really don't like Dan Slott, I'm sure you really hated this comic. There was a lot of like, you know, like killing off characters out of nowhere, you know, just kind of like random glib humor without the kind of like, you know, really selling the stakes of the moment. I feel like I have been consistent over the years on this show as being someone who when I when something that slot does clicks for me, it really clicks. I don't generally hate his stuff save for a couple of things you know what i mean so like i'm i'm i view myself as someone being kind of in the middle on dan slot you know what i mean and that's kind of how i feel about this comic i'm very in the middle of it i'm like it was fine i i had moments of fun moments of frustration i like you outside of what i pointed out earlier the sales angle like don't quite understand what the point of all of it is right now? Like, like, where does this really going to tie in and wh- why do this right now? I don't feel like I need a Spider-Verse story right now, despite the fact that we got a movie coming out when next year. What's what's the date on it now? At this, I, I know it was supposed to be around now, but that's not happening, obviously. Got pushed so, back, I think, to like April or May now. Right, right. So, I mean, and I'm sure like they could have adjusted like, like, like I don't. Even if they initially looked at the calendar and said, oh, we should have a Spider-Verse story for October or September, October 2022 because of the new movie. Once that got pushed back, they could have adjusted, but they decided, no, we're, we're going to just do it, you know, because it'll sell. And it probably did uh, not to keep beating that 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 drum home. But like, yeah, like, I don't know, like this didn't move the needle for me in any way the way like stories like spider island did or even like the red goblin arc did or or dance last very last story this felt very like there i will continue to read it because i'm just kind of intrigued to see where it all goes but like if you're one of those people who wants to scream into the void on twitter about why is dan slot still writing spider-man 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and say, well, you know, you're 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 wrong for saying that. Like it does feel kind of gimmicky and silly right now, but like that's what Marvel's gonna do, and you know, I'm sure financially it's justified. So that's 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 my review of it, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I feel very similarly to you. This is kind of like you could not have designed a better litmus test for a Dan Slot like writing Spider-Man comic. It has like absolutely everything that like has defined his writing on Spider-Man over the years, which is to say like, like self-referential Spider-Man dialogue, him singing songs while, while fighting people, the fridging of a female character to raise stakes uh, in in an early part of the story, like putting Spider-Man in deeply unfamiliar, larger than life territory, like rebuilding a JMS character in a way that makes them kind of an uh, ambiguous big bad switching character allegiances making bad guys good like l- literally every trope that you could apply you know like from a Dan Slot comic shows up here because it's Dan Slot, and this is what the kind of stories he likes to write and I'm with you like I'm up and down I think some of his stories are the absolute best that Spider-Man has ever been and some of his stories are the absolute worst that Spider-Man has ever been and most of his stories land dead in the middle and to me, this is one that landed pretty much dead in the middle. It made me smile a couple times. It made me frustrated other times. I thought Mark Bagley's art was fine. I thought the coloring was really bizarre. But, you know, I'm not going to get really bent out of shape about this. It, you know, yes, it references the Norman thing and the bug robot gets crushed. But, like, it really could be in its own pocket universe. And I, you know... It's so tonally different than the Zeb Wells run. Like, I just kind of have to, like, take a part of my brain and separate it to, you know, to kind of lean into this one. I mean, frankly, until this comic explicitly bleeds into Amazing Spider-Man written by Zeb Wells, it's hard for me to take it at anything more than just kind of a a side project, like little sideshow for for Marvel right now. Like, you know, like they can tell me and solicits or whatever that it's more than that, but like, you know, then, then show it to me. You know what I mean? Like as of right now, it's just kind of its own little, like you said, pocket universe right now. We're not going to give it a grade. I would say like, if you like dance lot, like you said, go check it out. If you like the spider verse stuff, really check it out. Mark and I have been historically cool on that. Cool. The negative on the spider verse stuff. I like some of the flips here. The movie's great. (laughs) Yeah, the movie's great. The movie's great. And I like the idea of like, like a bigger enemy coming along for, for Moreland to team up with the spider people, like interesting angle. I did get a real laugh slot references, the JMS run when Spider-Man gets punched by Moreland and he says like, Oh, he hit me harder than the Hulk. And just like weeks prior, Alan on this show had complained that he hates when writers take over books and they introduce a new villain and describe it by saying he hit me harder than the Hulk. And then <laughs> one of the Dan Slot thing, he he repeats that. And then I was reminded that JMS also wrote that. So like that got a real laugh out of me. I could just hear Alan's voice in my head saying, you know, how much he hates that trope. Yeah, I, I, so. I also laughed when like they literally just called out like, I, I forget the exact build up, but it was like so and so, so and so, it must be a Spider-Verse story. And I'm like, okay, like I mean, like very, very glib, very meta, very Dan slot. I mean, like, let's let's like like you know, like if if we're gonna put Dan Slot's work into a time capsule, that those panels would probably go into the time capsule. So <laughs> Right, great. Well, you know, we'll kind of keep an eye on it on our end and see how things shake up and whether or not we feel like this book is deserving of like maybe not full coverage, but mention like this uh, issue to issue right now. I think we just wanted to acknowledge it and say that we're going to see what this is. Cause I don't think anybody truly knows what we're looking at just yet. But one thing I do know is that if you do find the show entertaining and valuable, it would be a huge help if you could consider supporting us. You know, what Mark and I do is something that's very niche, very specific, you know, on the level of like, Hey, we don't have anybody that talks about Spider-Man in our lives. So maybe we can offer that to other people. And the more people that know about it, you know, maybe we'll, we can play that role in their lives too. So um, part of that is recommending Amazing Spider Talk to a friend. 
or if you're able, become a member of our Patreon. Yeah, and I must tip my hat for that transition. That was most excellent. We can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show's success to every single one of them. And we are constantly making exclusive content for our members. Right, Dan? Tell us about it. Yeah, right. $3.99. That's all it will take to become a, like a major, get most of our content on the Patreon. That's just the price of a new comic. And even that is a stretch these days. Like maybe I should up up this. No, no, we're sticking with $3.99, Mark. If, if only to serve as a model for Marvel to not increase their prices, right? Do not like, budge. Do not budge. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but uh, you can put that $3.99 towards a subscription and start receiving our Patreon content. That way you'll hear reviews like this one of every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the very same week that they come out into your local comic book store. If you're like someone that just would love to have us in your ears that very same week the comic comes out, I mean, this is how you do it. You know, plus you'll be invited to a Patreon exclusive live call each week to discuss your thoughts on the newest issues of Amazing Spider-Man. I've kicked this off and uh, Alex Galucky, our new video editor, is editing them together and they're hilarious and really fun. And I got to tell you, like, this has really rejuvenated my spirits in uh, the Spider-Man community, talking with all you listeners and Patreon supporters who join me every week to talk on a live call. And maybe I'll even like drag Mark to one of those uh, every now and again. This feels like the slack part too, but you know, maybe, maybe <laughs> if, if, if you get me early, I, I'll, I'll be a part of it. But you know, if you, if you let me languish for too long, I will never be a part of it. <laughs> if you contribute $10 a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. Plus every episode we release a a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. Yeah, and Mark, I, I've got to be honest with you. This is something I can't believe I'm saying right now. I have the Barry Kitson print in my hands. Oh, my. Like it, it arrived uh, all the way from uh, Ireland. Uh, so it's beautiful. I can't wait for people to see it. If you go on our Patreon, there is a digital download of that print available right now but that means i can finally start shipping some artwork out to people so if you are on board our ten dollar a month patreon tier prints are going out in november and i think it's going to be like christmas came a little early for everyone especially if you like seeing spider-man over gwen's dead body with the green goblin in the background i mean nothing says christmas like that although i guess it kind of does because spider-man blue is set at christmas time and that's about that so you know, I'm making this sound really great. Transitions. I, I, I'm getting good at this, Mark. You can sell um, ice to an Eskimo, Dan. Let me tell you. <laughs> tell me your needs, Eskimos, and I will find a way that ice fits those needs. But uh, yeah, the Barry Kitson print arrived, and we've got the Ron Friends kid who collects Spider-Man in color now going out, which also I had uh, David Curiel do a like faded kind of like misprinted one that looks exactly like you would have gotten that page in the original comic. So you're really going to get two prints of that and you can choose whichever one you think is better. Like one that looks pristine or one that looks like the page you would have gotten on like the weird eighties printing of that comic. Um, so that's going to be really fun. So anyway, there's a lot of really exciting things coming into the Patreon. We're all I'm continually upping and expanding things, especially now that I've got Alex Galucky who is editing our videos for us. So it's only freed me up to get more creative, Mark, because Lord knows I can't stop. But uh, it is your benefit and my loss of time with my newborn son. Uh Cats in the Cradle and the Silver Spoon. Mark, uh, let's wrap up the show. My goodness, this has taken a turn. Well, Dan, <laughs> it is that time. Time for all good things to come to an end and time for you to hang out with your son. No. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning into this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. 
Yeah, this episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our video version of the show is now available on YouTube and is edited by Alex Galucki. And if you really want something that's going to make your experience of this show better, I- I'm telling you, the production value that he's adding there is through the roof. So fun. So check that out on YouTube. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friend, Sal Buscema, and Ray Sunzer. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. And our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton from the Panels to Pixels YouTube channel. Look at that team. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. This is what it's all about, Mark. So, Mark. Until we both dress up in hobgoblin costumes and go to war with each other, what's our motto? You mean in in yellow cows? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Of course, that motto is, with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Don't miss the next installment.